I'm Louise and I'm Mary Kay and together we are Novel Gazing, the podcast that talks all about literary fiction. We are recording today's show on February the 18th so if anything dramatic happens in the literary (laughs) world between now and the next uh, episode I promise we'll catch up with it for you. Um, On today's show we're discussing current affairs and news from the literary fiction world and we are looking forward to Emma with a interview with the director and we are also sharing our latest tweets. I know right I'm very excited about this interview. (laughs) But before we do that let's hear from one of our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away with Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. So the first item that we wanted to discuss today is in the realm of uh, prizes for women's writers. It is a New prize for women writers in memory of Carol Shields. And she may be an author familiar to some of you. She's not um, ever really broken through, I don't think, in the UK, apart from being shortlisted for the Booker. Um, I think it was in 2003. And yeah, so they have her friends have set up a prize uh, for women writers in memory of her. Eligible books must be published in English in the US and Canada. And it includes books uh, translated from Spanish and French. And writers must be citizens or residents for um, at least five years of the US or Canada, which, again, ties in with Carol's background. Mm -hmm. But the interesting point is that I think um, I wanted to chat about with you today, Mary-Kate, was Mm -hmm. that um, the stats here are really interesting when you look at women winning 
prizes. That's mm-hmm. not a sentence I should say like three times fast, right? With winning <laughs> prizes. <laughs> so um, probably the nearest one. Oh, sorry, I got the date wrong. It is 2002. It is, uh, she was nominated for the Booker Prize in Unless. I added a year on by mistake. 22 women have won the Booker Prize over 50 years. And what's really interesting is, uh, is that if you think about that, nine of those women have won it in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And obviously in the last two years, two women shared with each other. Mm-hmm. So if you then compare that to, and I'm conscious I'm throwing a lot of numbers out here, so just yell at me and go, what? Um, well, I'm, I'm tracking it. And plus I have it in front of me. So <laughs> it's, helpful, it's helpful for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so if you look at the Nobel Prize, for example, as well, mm-hmm. that has been awarded to um 116 individuals with 101 men and 15 (laughs) women yeah yeah that's quite a difference that is very different yes so how do we feel about like gendered awards awards specifically looking to reward women writers well how do you feel about it well i i'm pretty cool about it really because i think it's yeah. <laughs> the end. Next. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I like it because, um, especially for uh, groups that have been underrepresented, um, mm. like I mean, a hundred and one to fifteen is a dramatic difference. Like that, it's a heck of a difference, right? Like with the with the Booker Prize, it's like okay, so slightly less, but. Okay, it seems like we're making strides, right? To yeah, it feels like the trajectory. Um, but the Nobel prizes, it's like okay, y'all, like (laughs) what are we doing? (laughs) There's no way that that is. There's no way that that is fair. So I feel like awards to kind of I don't even know how to like retroactively undo some of or not even undo but repair right because you can't yeah, undo it kind of, you, yeah you're kind of it's almost like an appendix to be like hey here's this thing that is a problem um we mm-hmm. know it's a problem we can't undo the problematic things that have happened because of it but we can try to repair it in the future yeah. like going forward so i like that um i think it can it can sometimes get to be, I mean, this is not the case. This seems like a very inclusive prize, but I know when I was looking for, you know, grants to apply for and stuff like that, it was, the list would get so deeply specific about all of the identity politics that you had to identify with that It was like, Mm. um, I mean, I get it, but also, um, it's weird. It's a weird kind of gatekeeping. I don't know. Um, not yeah. and again, not this prize, but I've seen that happen before where it's like, wow, like this is a very small underrepresented percentage. And I'm not saying that that doesn't need to happen, um, but it, it's it almost and this might be an unpopular opinion, but feels like an overcorrection. Ooh. Um, I, I give you a dramatic. Ooh, ooh thank you. <laughs> and again, I, and I, you know, I haven't done a lot of thinking about it or research into it, so I could be completely wrong. And would love to hear from our listeners um, about some different perspectives on that. But I do remember, mm. like, as a writer who was, I felt pretty good and needed kind of like a leg up. Um, that it was. I mean, it was either like very inclusive, so I had no shot at it, or it was like very exclusive, so I had no shot at it, um, if that yeah. makes sense. 
No, I think that's, you're kind of touching on something quite important there, isn't it? That notion of inclusivity becoming exclusive Mm -hmm. in a way and kind of in, in perhaps unintended circumstances and unintended consequences of making, um, something incredibly exclusive Mm -hmm. is that you in a way practice what you're trying to work against i think so and depending on the group of course that Mm. might be what needs to happen um does that make sense yeah no i think it does i think there's a balance there isn't there that we're Mm -hmm. trying to articulate this kind of mediatory space of recognizing that you need to talk to these groups and these uh communities that have been denied erased forgotten not allowed to participate within Mm -hmm. these um established things but equally just to be conscious of what you're doing with that stance right i think so yeah i I mean i think that that has been and that's just my one person's firsthand experience of it but yeah we'd love um, to like as 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 mary Kay says we would love to hear from your perspectives on this because we have very particular backgrounds and circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've been supported by these or you found them liberatory or um, reductive, mm-hmm. in a sense, this kind of scheme, yeah, it, it'd be great to have some sort of thoughts from the wider um, novel gazing community. Yes, we would love that. We And then actually the news article that I brought is, um, and I kind of rode your coattails on this. I hope that was cool. <laughs> um but it's a new prize for disabled writers or works of writers featuring the experience of having an, a disability accurately. So mm-hmm. it can be either way. Um, it's the, and I'm going to mispronounce this, I'm sure of it, but Barbellion, is that how you say it, Dina? I'm not 100% sure because I, I couldn't find a pronunciation guide. So we yeah, will go for Neither the could I. Barbellion. I think it's a person's name. So it could be oh, like... Okay. Uh, it could, you know, people's names are pronounced different ways depending on what their family preference is. But anyway, um, in that article, which is written by Book Riot's own Margaret Kingsbury, it talks about Ooh. the vagueness of defining a disability as well as sort of gatekeeping of invisible disabilities. So if it's a disability that yeah. doesn't present visually, um, that is a is a different experience right of yeah and it doesn't i mean i'm not saying that it's more or less of an experience it just is different so um that article is really interesting to me and of course we'll link to both of those in the show notes so that you can read those make sure that we're accurately representing them and if we went way off base definitely get in touch with us or if you're like no you did it exactly right we like hearing praise too i don't want to say that (laughs) either or is fine we like both of them yeah i think margaret's article is really interesting in that she recognizes that prizes like this Mm -hmm. don't exist in a way you know the one of the um other prizes she shouts out is the schneider family book award for children's and young adult literature Mm -hmm. so it's great to see um attempts to address this but she articulates really well as you said that balance between um gatekeeping and 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 inclusivity it's Mm -hmm. it's a really good read it really is um and i felt like i learned so much like it's not a super long article but i learned a lot from because it packs Mm -hmm. a real punch you know um but yeah i really like that and then while we were talking about um the prize winnings um this is a, a smaller amount of uh 
financial award reward award award yes (laughs) um it's it's a smaller number so um it's interesting too like when i uh was looking at um those types of things to apply for um it does seem like the more specific the award gets the less financial award it has okay um so to kind of compare the numbers and I'm looking back up here, uh, Louise, what was the prize for, let's just start big, right? Let's start Nobel prize. This is the one with 101 men winners and 15 women winners. Yeah. So this varies, um, in, in sort of circumstances, uh, various rules apply to it. But in 2020, I, uh, I was looking and the prize is, well, it was clearly, mm-hmm. um, which is the equivalent to 848,000 euros or £716,000. So either way you look at it, that is a chunk of money. And that's that's like an incredible figure for writing. Yeah, I could do some serious damage with that amount of money. Yeah, we're here to help if anyone wants to donate that. (laughs) For real. (laughs) We want us to help help. you spend your money. (laughs) I'm glad to do that. Yeah, I'm very supportive in these situations. Champagne taste in a beer bottle pocket. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, okay, so that's the Nobel in literature. Yeah, and then like the um, Booker Prize uh, Mm. is 50,000. So again, that's still nothing to laugh at, but you can see like the the grades of of I, I don't want to say achievement because that's not quite right, is it? Mm. But the grades of um the financial grades that apply to these, right? So that's fifty thousand pound. Yes, right? for the booker. Okay. So it would be a little bit more in dollars. Yes. Okay. Depending um, on how awfully the British economy is right, doing. Right, but still a fraction <laughs> of the Nobel. Still a fraction of yes, that. Yes, And then, um, so the new prize in memory of Carol Shields, that's, okay, in between those two, right? Yeah, so that was um, 100,000, I'm going to say numbers like I have said numbers before. Uh, 150,000 Canadian dollars, which is approximately uh, 100,000. What is it with numbers today? They're hard. That's just numbers. We're we're English. We're we're words people. Yeah, numbers are not my friend right now. So right, I'm gonna fight through this. Fight through this pain. And uh, 113,000 US dollars, approximately which is approximately 85,000. So again, you can see, and they, they mentioned this in the article that we'll link to, mm-hmm. that they've gone out to try and make a big splash in memory of her. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's a big, big figure. And with writers' salaries being what they are mm-hmm. and the average figures of what a writer earns, it's, it's important stuff. It really and particu- is. Yeah, and particularly for women who may... I what I'm reaching to towards here is the notion of women writers and supporting themselves in this. It's such an important thing to fund women with the um chance to be able to write. You know, you're reaching back to stuff like Virginia Woolf, aren't you, and the room of their own, giving them that opportunity to be to be creative. So that award is significant. 
I think. Mm. And um or I mean not only the award but the financial benefit of winning an award like that and um the prize that uh, for disability writers um is 600 pounds. So it's yeah. a significant you know difference. And I'm not saying that I mean I could do damage with that too, but um <laughs> I'm not right. I'm not saying like, oh, that's not enough. Every little bit counts for sure, but it's yes. just a, a big disparity, and it's just something to yeah. notice. I think it's something to note. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, it will prove incredibly beneficial for people, and it will prove incredibly beneficial for the person who wins it because you can't quantify that moment, can you? Really, financially, right. but equally, right? There is a space, and we are looking out here at corporate sponsors to get yourself involved in these dialogues mm-hmm. for, sure. for sure uh speaking of is it time to hear a word from our lovely sponsors indeed it is yay today's episode is brought to you by flat iron books publisher of 888 love and the divine burden of numbers by abraham chang So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Publishing. So I got a story with a little Old West debauchery, if you want to get a little messy. So there is a city steeped in the Old West mess. And in the city, a reporter is following every lead to a dangerous place, one that could bring him glory and fame or end his life. New York Times bestselling author Robert Dugoni is back with a gripping new thriller of corruption, vice, and murder set in Depression-era Seattle. It's about a reporter covering a hot murder trial who soon learns nothing is what it seems. The story could make his career if he lives to write about it. You can learn more at Amazon.com slash A Killing on the Hill. So yes, A Killing on the Hill by Robert Dugoni is what you need to pick up if you are into some depression era danger in Seattle. It's a city of big dreams and dark ambitions. And this reporter gets caught up in the muck. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Amazon Publishing for sponsoring this episode. So, in anticipation of the new film adaptation of Emma, I, and this is Mary Kay talking, got to interview the director, Autumn DeWild. And I know, it was amazing. I had so much fun. Um, And what you're about to hear is that interview itself. So, I hope that you enjoy it. And um, she's amazing. So, I hope you like it. Okay. Hi, Mary Kay of Autumn. Hi, Autumn. This is Mary Kay. Hi. 
I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Um, I co-host Book Riot's literary fiction podcast, Novel Gazing. Um, But so uh, before we talk about like um, Emma specifically and your experience with that, I thought that I should ask you, what are you reading right now? Or if you're not reading anything right now, what was the last thing that you read that you love? Well. I'm still reading Emma. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm like, I'm still doing research. It doesn't make sense. I suppose I'm having trouble letting go, which isn't the worst thing. Um, uh, uh, and the, the next book, let's see, I have a couple of the next book. I have a, I probably have a pile of books. I, do I can't too. tell you one of them because I, w- I want to make it into a movie, so i got to cut that one out of the story. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> That's <laughs> oh, fair. <you> know what? <laughs> yeah, I did read uh, a book that I'm very obsessed with, um, and I'm obsessed with the writer um, Smoke Up In Your Eyes by Caitlin Dottie. Yes. Um, which was really eye-opening, yeah, on the death industry. And I'm a big fan of hers uh, now. Um, yeah, she's great. And, and her... Yeah, yeah, and also, and and then I read the the follow up book as well. Um, but this this one is I just you know you think you know what your plan is, and I realized I had no idea, and it really inspired me to have a conversation with my parents about what they wanted, you know, for when they died, and you know it's right. It's just it is weird the blindness we have to that part of the life cycle. Totally, and um, and uh, and I. Yeah, and I love the way she writes about it too. It's like, um, yeah. So that was that was kind of like a really. It, it's interesting to have such an eye-opening experience from a book. Yeah, and it and that book is so like, it is eye-opening because we really don't like talking about. I mean, we like talking about death like as a concept, but not like what will happen when you die, like necessarily, or like what happens with the people you leave behind. You know. So that's cool, and um, it's true. I yeah, am, and it's yeah, it's such an interesting and new industry. The sort of you know the natural death movement. So that 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 felt like it opened up a whole world to me, which I'm grateful for. Me too. I like that too, and um, it totally makes sense to me as well that you're still reading Emma because I will go deep into the wormhole of research okay. about like anything that I'm excited about. And I'm not a director or anything. So I have no, like much less reason to do that. But, um, <laughs> but that makes complete sense to me because it, I mean, the world in this movie is just, it's so vivid. And I have to confess that like one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you about this film is that historically for me personally, at Regency period novels have not really appealed to me, but this film did like immediately. Um, and I think it's for several reasons, oh, but so yeah, I loved it. And I, and um, on our podcast that we host, we've talked about sometimes like there's just some books that like it's hard for us to get into. And um, I think a lot of the times like a great move, a film adaptation of a book is a really way, a good way of accessing it because now like, when I go back and read that book, I'm never going to not picture these actors as those characters, which I loved. I was say, um, you know what's really helpful? Because I, I knew Emma, but I don't, I didn't really, I don't, I feel now that I didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a whole language translation that needs to happen in order for you to see the humor and the historical education you need to understand, 
you know, that she's poking fun at the class system. Right. Um, and and it really helps to understand it. And so the book that really helped me was um, The Annotated Emma by um, David M. Shepard. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. Okay. But, you know, each page, it's a bit scary because it looks like it's gigantic, the most biggest book you'll ever read, I suppose. But, um, but what's great about it is each page of story has on the opposite page a page of notes. You're not right. flipping back and forth trying to find the meaning of things. It's right there, opposite. And he also added a lot of, like, interesting historical facts to fill out your, you know, and this all feels like it comes from a personal interest, not just, uh, not just um, you know, um, an academic viewpoint, you know, and that's mm-hmm. cool. You know, there's just random facts like this is what a carriage looks like from that time period and right. you know and this is kind of what someone would have worn in the morning and I, it, it was a real like it changed the book for me um you know I didn't realize how much I wasn't getting by glossing over perhaps especially words that we still use but had a different meaning then right. you know that's that's fascinating to me because um, and you led me right into one of my like one of my questions that I had for you, which was, I didn't realize how funny this book was until I saw it just even on the trailer. And I was wondering, especially because there is so much context, right, that goes with a book like this and with the pages of footnotes, I would like to thank you on behalf of lazy readers everywhere for doing that work for us on the screen. Um, but, like, how do you adapt? How did you make it so funny? Like, how, I mean, I know it's funny on the page, but how did, what was, was there a process that you used or did you, like, is it exactly, yeah. I, don't, I feel like it's adapted really well in that way, if that makes sense. Well, um, uh, a book everyone should read is The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, and she wrote the screenplay. Right. So, uh, when I was asked to pitch on the film, I was given uh, the, the first draft, okay. and I was very excited because she's a really electric writer. Okay. Um, and then I, part of my pitch was this uh, screwball comedy slant on it. Um, right. I had about a month to prepare with her script and the research I was doing, and this is when I started realizing, wait, Jane Austen's funny. I just, you know, I suppose mm-hmm. I didn't know that it's, you know, sense and sensibility, it so has a lot of humor in it, um, Ang Lee's version, and that's why it's one of my favorite of the Jane Austen films. Um, uh, but, uh, and the awkwardness in that movie is so well played, you know, um, the, 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 diff- the different ways that their behavior is, restrained due to the the rules of their class and position in society. Um, But, but um, when I got to, when I got the film and, and I got together with Eleanor Catton, she was Mm -hmm. so funny herself. I I didn't know this about her. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're, she's very, she's, I mean, I don't say it lightly. She's a genius. Mm -hmm. And, and so she really, from the, ground up understood the book but she also really got the humor and so when I proposed the screwball comedy approach she really dug into that and we actually you know our our big goal was to humanize the characters you know and to say to the audience it's 1815 but they're human I don't really care about modernizing it's another way you could go with the story because the story is so good but I really wanted to create a historical film 
Mm-hmm. Because it was such an exciting challenge for me. And and then we just, we shared a lot of personal, really ridiculous stories in our life. And those were threaded into the film. And, and really, they made sense because when we both understood the character so well and the play. And so, and that's what happens when you connect to a character. You're like, oh, this is like when this such and such happened to me. And totally. we, start, we put some of that in the film, you know, we took some liberty with the story because it felt like they were ways of really highlighting these specific character traits and the, you know, maybe making it a little clearer what the sort of passive aggressive fights that were going on between characters. Um, uh, yeah. (laughs) I, I loved that. And one of the, the visual cues that to me, like, you know, when you're in the theater, you kind of feed off the energy of the other people around you and everything. But I belly laughed the first time that Mrs. Elton was on screen with that hairstyle. I was like, okay, so we're not, we can't take her seriously, right? Like, I think that, and I just, I loved that that was the setup. And immediately, um, we, it delivers on that image, you know, where she's like, well, I really like a minimalist, yeah. you know, <laughs> like, that's really what I would prefer. Yeah. And I just, yeah. I love that. I know, <laughs> I know. And I, yeah. That, that's like, the. I mean, Eleanor Catton has this amazing, like, underplayed writing style where she, she just can, she's so good at taking, uh, I'll tell her something that takes me, as you can see, like uh, five minutes to explain, and then she boils it down to one perfect sentence. You know, so I used to call her the Jane Austen translator. I was like, "Look, this is what I'm thinking. This is my idea. Put it through the translator." She goes, "I've got it. It's this." Amazing. So she kind of like synthesized um, we, all of the notes. Yeah, we had a lot a, of fun. Yeah, that's great, and and I guess um, because. I'm just, you know, I'm not really in the film world, but um, it's more of a partnership in this case with uh, with you and the writer of this of the screenplay. Is that what you're kind of saying? It really was. Um, it, it. I don't know that everyone gets as lucky as I did, but um, you know, she she is. It's so fascinating to see if if I did have an idea, no matter how small it was, and sometimes it was. A lot of times it was that she also wrote into the script a lot of the non-verbal ideas. Okay. The things that normally would, a lot of times the writer wouldn't be maybe involved with because it's by the time you're blocking the scene. Mm-hmm. But it was really important to us to include it into the script so the actors could get a picture of an idea of the other things going on in the room besides the words. Right. And so she was gracious enough to write a lot of that into the script. And, and it was... And it was really interesting to see, even if it was a small thing, that she could calculate quickly, oh, we can't do that, because that would throw off the meaning of this person, what they say, and that person, and how it changed. You know, there's a lot of mysteries in this book mm-hmm. that are revealed at the end, and we're, we were laying clues along the way, which was a style that Jane Austen invented, which is the detective story style. Uh, Agatha Christie based her style of writing on Emma, which is, there's, you know, a a couple big secrets are revealed at the end, and Mm -hmm. if you go back and read it a second time, you realize that you were told all the secrets, it was in the dialogue, it was in the story, Um, the clues were there, and you just missed them, Mm -hmm. um, because you weren't looking for them, And, uh, and so that was really important to both of us, to leave these physical signs of, you know, the answers to the, to the mystery 
um, as well as some of the things that they say that give it away. That's so interesting to me. And I, I remembered, um, I, I didn't know that until I was kind of doing some homework for this interview. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense because yeah. it's there all along, but you didn't know it until someone told you. And then it's like, I can't unsee it now. You know, like it's, it was there all along. Um, yeah. And I love being able and to realize that. that's a really basic human thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, like, you know, it's like if you've ever had, like, find out that there's a secret affair going on among your friend group or, like, so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so, and you had no idea, and as soon as you know, you remember seven things that told you that was happening. Right. You know, and um, and I and that was another one of those, these human problems that never, that don't have anything to do with being 200 years earlier. You know, like, we, those were things we were really trying to highlight and remind people, like, we're still like this, by the way, you know. <laughs> it totally is. Uh, we just have a different set of social roles. Yeah, I I was noticing, too, that the social cues in this period are so foreign to me until I'm seeing it happen, like when Mrs. Elton is sitting in their pew at church, and they are kind of like, yeah. who is this? <laughs> what is what? Because, like, no one ever said we, anything, but it, it's, yeah. it's there. It's um, <laughs> it's so great. We call that kind of like that. We call that the um, the editor and I call that kind of like the asshole ballet. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it's like the you know Mrs. Elton is such a dick, but Emma is such a dick too. You know, yeah. and so she's been like the queen dick. You know, and then she walks in and she's like, "What? Someone who's more a dick than me? <laughs> this is impossible." <laughs> <laughs> and that's oh, a yes. really important observation that Jane Austen made was that Mrs. Elton, you know, is uh, the nouveau riche, supposedly very crass mm -hmm. and and uh, unwelcome in uh, Emma's uh, society, and yet she's a lot like Emma, and right. Emma is faced with a mirror of her of an exaggeration of her behavior, and she doesn't like the way it looks. And Mrs. Elton is a really important. Uh, part of Emma changing, mm -hmm. you know, and and I think also another thing that was really important to Eleanor and I was that you know everyone got made fun of and every you know no one really got gets away from the pen, right? From the it's... blade, you know, um, and uh, and as much as Mrs. Elton seems like um, you know an annoying uh, thorn in everyone's side, she also has a lot of heart mm -hmm. and is would be the last person to make fun of the state, mm -hmm. you know, and that's apparent in that, in that, uh, Box Hill scene. Yeah. And when, when she's like, you want it, you're ready for this walk. And Miss Bates is like, um, yes, that would be great. <laughs> like, yeah, I love how they're there. It's so, it's yeah. not really exactly passive aggressive, but it, there's a conversation that's happening in the subtext that they don't really are like verbalize that it comes across really well on the yeah. screen. And I think I was just missing it when I was reading it yeah. myself. So, um, I loved that. And well, it requires a, an understand. I think it requires, you know, in order to see it in the text, you have to un understand that it was there right? Um, all around them. And that was, you know, and there's a certain, she, what she's writing about it, it requires a certain understanding of the, the of, of the world that she was living in, and, and it really helped, you know, to to get it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and um, come, like going back to something that you said a moment ago about how the characters are like no one gets not no one doesn't get made fun of. I love that because even our hero, Mr. Knightley, I think you explained him as being a mansplainer who doesn't want to be a man, mansplainer. And just like all of them have like really strong, um, uh, like positive qualities, but they also all are kind of sucky, you know, like they all have like a, a draw, like a, a drawback from their personalities. And I think that rings really authentic and realistic. And so even though they're not, you don't necessarily like want to necessarily be their friend you kind of are interested at least I mean I kind of do want to be Emma's friend and I think also I just needed to tell you and I know that this is the original the novel but the thing that endeared Emma or endears Emma to me the most the character is that when Mr. Elton came on to her she told Harriet right away and I just think that not everyone would do that you know? Like, yeah. You know, actually in the book, she takes her sweet time. <laughs> and she's a bit relieved that Harriet's sick. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, we, we, but, but at the same, you're right. She didn't, she didn't go, she didn't not tell her. And that is right. really unusual, I think. Uh, you know, and I, I, what I love about that moment with Harriet is that she's, and I think a lot of girls have experienced this with their best friends, where they're coming to bond with you over a problem with a boy, but they kind of get it wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and Emily doesn't really realize how attached Harriet is. It, it has been a game to her, and she doesn't realize until that moment that it wasn't a game for Harriet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she really comes in so they can bond over how stupid Mr. Elton is and how <laughs> he's just trying to raise his position in society and he doesn't even know what love is. Right. And then, you know, that, that was part of the reason why we put the flower game uh, in before. Uh, we thought it was like a way of combining this like beautiful moment between all these girls playing this game and mm-hmm. that. And I hear your place is really fine without Emma. Mm-hmm. You know, she really has a community around her. And then by her having flour in her face, it creates this physical humiliation in advance of the of the humiliating news. Right. You know, and I love like a visual metaphor for uh, for uh, a terrible situation. Totally. I think a lot of us usually when we when we have a terrible thing that's happened to us, we usually have a really strange memory of, of a visual part of that story, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes the funniest, the, you know, the most saddest things are the funniest things later. And so there's a lot of crying that has to happen in, toward the end of the movie. So I sort of want it to be like tragic and, and hilarious, you know, mm-hmm. that theme. Yes. And I, I loved it. They were playing that game when she got that news um, because she was oh. so happy. And then it's just, I, know. A, it's, I don't know. I, I, I love that also that that, um, was you, you're saying like that didn't happen in that order in the novel, but adapting it to the screen is you kind of re- rearranged and com- uh, compressed some of the the plot elements. Is that am I yeah. remembering that right? Okay. Yeah. In the book, in the book, she waits a, a bit before she can get up the nerve to tell Harriet, um, right. which is important because she's 
you know, it's a, it is a brave moment for Emma, but it's not brave enough. Right. And, um, and there's, but the way I think we, Eleanor and I realized that you could really, and Anya, Anya was a big part of creating Emma's character, um, was, uh, the way you could really sympathize with her was seeing her make half, half of the right decision, mm-hmm. you know, because I think we can all see that in ourselves, those moments where we were, we did that sort of bullshit apology, right. you know, or we totally. told, or like, you know, yeah, immediately afterwards. the truth, <laughs> yeah. and it felt like maybe it was enough. Right. And then immediately yeah. regretting it. And I think it's interesting <laughs> that it's the it is kind of the secret that really only Harriet and her know, and that, that's very topical. That's mm-hmm. the, you know, Mr. Elton, he didn't physically attack her, but he put her in a very compromised position in that carriage. Yeah. And he got really angry when he got rejected and and blamed her, and that is a very modern idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that, that's not modern because that's been happening for a long time. Um, you know, and and then, you know, when Mr. Elton waltzes back in with Mrs. Elton, it's really only Harriet and Emma know what Mr. Elton did, right. you know, um, and I think that that bonds them together, you know, because it's still something that they couldn't really talk about what the vicar did, you know, it would be embarrassing for her and it would, it wouldn't, you know, it's, and it would embarrass his new wife that, too. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love the attention to the detail of, like, manners in the movie, Um, particularly, like, with dating and marriage and uh, the weddings themselves, Uh, because there's, even now, there's just such a a detailed, intricate, easily misstepable, like, etiquette for those particular um, phenomena, I guess, but I... I just thought that, like, even as it was happening, I was like, oh, no. Like, I don't know if you've experienced – I mean, I'm sure you have, but this movie is so relatable in that way where it's like, oh, I remember going to a wedding or, you know, someone is dating, but I didn't know they were dating, and I said a thing, and I didn't mean for it to come across like that, but I'm sure that it did. Like, I just – Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's real relatable. Yeah, we, we talked – we talked – no, we talked – we, this this was how all of the actors and Eleanor and I and the whole team, this is how we really translated these moments. As, as I often would say this reminds me of the time, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I mean, some of the stuff was like the nosebleed is because I, I get nosebleeds all the time. It's so annoying, you know. And, <laughs> and I've often had a romantic situation where a nosebleed was not welcome. And I love that the human body betrays us sometimes in the most you know, uh, you know, and when I'm angry and I cry and I don't, I'm so pissed off that I'm crying because yes. I don't want it to diminish the right. power of my anger, you know. Yes, the misrepresentation. The <laughs> yeah. Us, you know. I loved it. And, and when and that so happens, we talked about yeah. this a lot, yeah. And Mr. Knightley, like Donnie and I talked a lot about the, 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 the path of panic attacks because he and I both, I suffered a lot more with panic attacks when I was younger mm-hmm. and found my way through them. And, uh, and, and, uh, Johnny has uh, been plagued with them, uh, you know, in his life and, and, and in a way that I think we could both see in a comical way. So Mr. Knightley has like quite a few panic attacks. Some of mm-hmm. them he's, he's trying to suppress, you know, and, um, and so it was fun to put those 
real things in. Uh, you know, you can't say it didn't happen. Right. So it helps make, and I think too, Mr. Knightley, like Johnny was such a great collaborator because I think that the fact that Mr. Knightley is almost always right, you know, and, yeah. and he should be telling her, he's the only one that can be honest with her. Right. And that, that mansplaining thing is, is a, is a delicate subject. Cause some people mm. I'm sure will be like, he's not a mansplainer. He's right. He is right. He is it's right. It's just that he's not getting through to Emma, you know, right. he's so right. And he's not getting through to her. And, and, and he's kind of blinded by his own, uh, in, in his criticism of her, he's not seeing the things in himself that he needs to approve too, which is why that speech he gives at the proposal is so such an incredible, you know, such an incredible speech because, you know, he, he was so busy pointing the finger at her, he didn't realize how far he needed to come as right. a human as well um, in a different way, you know. Yes. But the etiquette was really fun. You know, I pulled the actors from the beginning and I was like, we are going to go full on. I'm sorry. You're going to have to get used to it. Um, but I think that the true comedy will come out of this, you mm -hmm. know, and also the, it'll be truly sexy and truly romantic if we include this, you know, the the, the intensity of the, the rules. Um, and mm -hmm. so they embraced it fully. And, and you know, the, every time an actor was doing a scene with someone and they would accidentally touch someone's arm as you would, in a normal world, modern world, I would say, don't touch her, don't touch her. <laughs> right. You know? uh, and that, yeah, and, that was, and, and they, got, they got into it because by the time, like, Emma and, and Mr. Knightley's fingertips touched mm -hmm. in the hallway before the dance, mm -hmm. I mean, I feel the electricity. Oh, totally. The actors felt it. She didn't have her gloves on. I mean, can you believe that must have just been so amazing to feel mm -hmm. that? And, we were checking with the etiquette, uh, our wonderful etiquette advisor, and I was like, can she have her gloves off in this moment? And, and Mr. Knightley, you know, Johnny and Anya was like, please, can we have the gloves off? It'll make it so much better. <laughs> She's like, yes, because if she had just eaten, she wouldn't have her gloves back on. <laughs> oh, we went hardcore. That's and great. And we went really hardcore. It's, uh, that's amazing. And it, it's, I didn't know that specifically, but it definitely, you're right, it conveys that on the screen for sure. Um, yeah, I loved this movie, and I'm yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, my my DOP. Uh, oh, thank you, my DOP. Uh, Chris Blauvelt, my cinematographer. And when we were filming the moment when they hold hands, you know, towards the end of the movie, and she's got gloves on and he doesn't, and mm -hmm. there's this like squeak of the leather. Mm -hmm. He stops the shot. And he looks around. He's like, he's like, oh, this is glove porn. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I know that you are, you love doing the research, or it seems like, because it, it just is a kind of an experience. But do yeah. you have a project that um, is like your bucket list project, or like one that you would really love to do next, or or have one in mind, or is this the one? Um, I would, I, you know, I, I can't go into details, because as you know, those things are top secret. Sure. But definitely on my bucket list is an action movie. Okay. Because... I just think that there's, like, there's a lot of room for visual improvement, and I love mm -hmm. Die Hard. Like, I love Die Hard. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's maybe one of the best Christmas movies of all time. I agree. And I just think, you know, in the old days, you know, in the early James Bond movies and, and uh, 
movies with Steve McQueen. You know, the, there was a lot of color. The cars were orange. The chairs were, you know, marigolds. They wore these, you know, beautiful suits that were of different colors, not just black, you know. And, and so I would love to do, like, a really visually um, electric action movie, but, like, a, a real action movie, you cool. know. So yeah. that would be, that's on my bucket list for sure. Okay, I, would, I will see that. Those are, those are romantic. <laughs> Yeah. Those are rom-coms, you know, like, those are, those are rom-coms. I don't know what anyone, like, how anyone's <laughs> fooling themselves. There's always, they're always so sappy. That's, you know? that's true. And I, I, just, I love how that. these things are separated from men. And I'm like, what about this is specifically men? The fast part? Because I, they definitely have tears in their eyes when the two men are talking to each other. <laughs> that's true. I hadn't thought about that. That's, oh, that's such a good... I'm never going to unsee that now either. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, my last question is for writers of literary prose like me, um, what makes a book sort of sing to a director that it could be adapted well into a film? I think that there aren't any rules. I okay. think that, you know, you, you I suppose you have a human connection to it. Okay. Some books are feel like they're so legendary like you just feel the influence the and you feel that they that they will have an effect till the end of time and mm-hmm. maybe it's that thing that captures in an interesting you know packaging you know possibly that seems fresh and new there's still these base human issues that people have and mm-hmm. you know Ben Gibbard from Death Gap for Cutie told me once he's like you know, I can't remember really what I was so upset about in my 20s, but I remember every single person hurt my feelings in high school. And I think, like, you know, we were always be obsessed with this, like, transition time period, I think, you know, in the yeah. teens and the early 20s, you know, and and, uh, and those things, maybe they maybe they never stopped feeling relevant. Maybe we're never stopped trying to resolve those, those issues from our teenage life, you know? So mm-hmm. I suppose those What you just heard was Mary Kay McBrayer, that's me, interviewing the director, Autumn DeWild, about her debut feature film, the adaptation of Emma from Focus Features, which will have its limited release on February 21st and its wide release on March 6th. So definitely go see that movie. Uh, You won't be disappointed. It was a delight. It truly was. Excellent. I'm so pleased. Me too. Oh, that's so... exciting times all right um so yeah i think we finish off today then with a chat about our current reads yeah so what is it that you're tucking into at the moment so right now i am currently reading um stephen graham jones new horror novel the only good indians mm-hmm. and i'm really enjoying it so far i'm not super deep into it yet but it's it's fun. And I know that it's like, um, 
it, it, of course, because his work does this, tackle some overarching, like, big problems in society. But it also is fun on the level of, like, the horror movie of, like, it's... It's not campy, but it definitely alludes to a lot of the horror genre, both in literature and film. And I really right. like it when, I mean, obviously, because I love film adaptations of stuff. And y'all have heard me say before that sometimes I'll watch the movie before I read the book so that I have those characters in mind. But I, I really enjoy that kind of crossover and acknowledgement of different genres because yeah. neither of those exists in a vacuum. Like, they influence each other. They just do. Because yes. the experience of them, if you, do it, if you do it the same way, it has a similar experience. So, yeah. The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Um, and it's real, real good so far. Um, what are you reading, <laughs> Louise? Uh, I am looking at Animal Farm. Ooh. Uh, I, but I'm looking at the um, graphic novel adaptation. And it's by a Brazilian uh, artist called Odia. And I'm going to spell that out as well for people who may be looking for it. It's O-D-Y-R. And oh, dear. Okay, yeah. I would never have put that together. I don't know. No, well, I, I checked with someone and they were like, no, this is what I would go for for the pronunciation. So um, apologies if I've just um, mangled it substantially, but hopefully <laughs> it's accurate. Um, so, yeah, Animal Farm. Again, this is tying into the film theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I watched the film recently and I was fascinated to find out that the uh, the animated film, I was fascinated to find out that the CIA had actually funded it and asked for a different ending. I did the not know that. that. The book. I know, right? I was sat there going, this is not what I remember reading. Um, and for those of you who are familiar with the text, you'll know that... Um, certain things happen and certain characters um end up in certain positions that is totally reversed and wow there is much more of a political edge to it uh and one that is funded by the cia backers who um essentially said if you want to make this film you're going to have to make it with this twist in the <laughs> twist in the tail she says um, <laughs> yeah i know right added puns yeah. um but yeah, so um, I'm still intensely traumatised by what happens to Boxer because I am pro the pony in every story. Um, but it is such a beautiful, beautiful adaptation. Uh, the artwork is stunning. What's really interesting is the embrace of like white space through it. So it really makes it this kind of story that could be happening in your life right now. Um, but yeah, it's it's something i'd really recommend people look for and look out for and yeah watch it with the film because then you'll just be um able to chat to me about it and go right are you was it just it's such a strange ending to apply to this tale of isn't so it's basically like uh making a political satire about propaganda in support of propaganda (laughs) or like into propaganda wow i know it's (laughs) it's brilliant we will um link to an article about it as well in the notes okay uh but yeah i really was quite fascinated by it because as i say i was watching the film just going i really remember a very different book right i haven't read it in so long but i do remember it being like 
uh, about the idea of, I don't even know how to articulate this. Maybe you can help me. Um, it's, it's the perils of communism, essentially. Okay. And, you know, the, um, what happens to the common man if he believes in, in um, Lenin and Stalin and all of that um, jazz. So obviously at the, um, this was obviously quite a big issue with the Cold War and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So you can see the rationale behind them trying to adapt the ending, which, um, and I'm going to insert a brief spoiler warning here. If you haven't read the book, this will be a point where you la 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 to yourself for about five minutes. Um, the pigs become equivalent to man and the animals become sort of subjugated and there is this really horrific ending where the um everything goes to hell in a handbasket <laughs> essentially um but the film flips it to offer this kind of hope of defeating the oppressive system and that's such an interesting weird decision to make especially with a book that is all about presenting you with the realities of the political choices that you make yeah that's yep wow <laughs> so 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 on that cheery note shall we wind up for today yeah all right so thank you very much to our sponsors thank you to you for listening we appreciate each and every one of you uh don't forget to subscribe through however you get your podcasts and don't forget to tell your friends about us we'd also really appreciate it if you could leave us a review um and even a rating if you enjoyed this episode it really helps other people to find us Mm -hmm. and uh it's a good egg thing to do so (laughs) you can also find us online i have a website did you ever stop to think.com and I am at Shalai Fan on Twitter. And I, my website is just MaryKayMcBrayer.com, but I'm also on Twitter at MKMcBrayer and Instagram at just my name again, Mary Kay McBrayer. So thank y'all so much for listening. Thank we love you. to hear from you, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.